welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Seth, for getting together with me and being a guest on the podcast. I appreciate you driving all the way down here to talk. So, Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's a beautiful drive. Yeah, it is. So um, you are the recent husband of my niece, Cassidy, Seth, and um, you, uh, you're a teacher, just you know, introducing you. You're a teacher. You're into literature. I think you t- teach school um, English and literature. Yeah. And um, we'll go ahead and define w- what it is that you're wanting to do. Yeah. Um, so for me, I, I was really influenced by several streams of thought in the past couple years. I'd say really since I turned about 18. I'm 27 now. And so I think when I first started getting into, you know, want to sell everything, take a vow to poverty, move to a hut somewhere in the developing world. But kind of as time has progressed, um, I've seen kind of my heart change. It really started with, uh, I was reading an essay, actually, I was already living overseas. And, um, I read an essay by C.S. Lewis uh, called Learning in Wartime. And in this essay, um, it talked about how essentially cultures are not going to stop progressing in a certain sense um, culturally, and the church can either be a part of it or not be a part of it. Um, And that's not to say that the church should go along with it, but um, that Christians have a responsibility in other domains than just the world of the church world to have a voice. Uh, and so for me, I feel a little more inclined towards literary side of things or the academic side of things. And so uh, I would say that I would want to, to be um, someone that's living overseas, working a vocation in that realm that happens to love people um, well towards the ends of them knowing Jesus. I really enjoy languages. And so I think for me, um, picking one language group to really study and focus on and kind of lock down on. Um, okay, so working in a job and um, loving people well to the end they know, come to know Jesus. So why overseas? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of reasons. I, I don't want to give the, the cop-out answer as, you know, that's pretty clear within Scripture, but I think that's where we start, and it has to be our, our biblical basis, and that's the reason why we, you know, live, breathe, and have our being um, is rooted in the Word of God. And Matthew twenty four fourteen says, the gospel of the kingdom of God will be preached as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Um, and then we have the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, um, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. Um, and just in those two verses, and, and all of Scripture is... Um, God pursuing the nations, um, but even in just in those two scriptures, we see such a clear model and, and ask of us, and um, it's kind of ironic that we can completely miss that for years and years and years, you know, without realizing it's right in front of us that God does desire for all nations, every tribe, tongue, and people um, to be around the throne worshiping Him. Okay, so. Um yeah, and I get. I guess, and I don't know this 
the state of Christianity in the world, but I, you know, I hear of like things happening all over the world, like kind of exciting things as far as people involved in making disciples and and stuff like that. But I guess there are places that um, it's rare uh, to, you know, still. Yeah, uh, I think specifically there's in, in missiology terms you'll hear of a thing called the 1040 window, which I'm sure. Um, knowing Billy and, and the folks that you know, you've heard of that, but really it's a geographical region, um, predominantly North Africa, Middle East, South Asia, where almost 2 billion people live and virtually, I think, I think it might be actually not virtually, but less than 1% of those people would be considered Christian. And that's the broad scope of what is considered Christian by Catholic, Mormon, Jehovah Witness, Protestant. Oh, that um, would, they would they would consider all of oh, those even in that that one percent. Um, however, in the U.S., less than I think last statistic I saw was less than three percent of missions budgets at churches go towards that region of the world. And so, um, I think that's kind of indicative of why, for me. Um, and for my other friends that have chosen to, to go to that side of the world, is it seems like it's a very overwhelming need, um, but underrepresented in the folks that churches are sending. Now, you mentioned um, loving people well and, um, you know, to bring them to, to Christ. So um, so tell me more about that. Like, what? Uh, why do you put it in, in that way, I guess? Yeah, there's several reasons. I've been really influenced by a few thinkers specifically on this topic. Um, one would be Augustine. Um, as an 18-year-old, I read his confessions, and he opens it with, you know, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, um, talking about God there. And I think our primary desire uh, our primary, what he would call a telos or telos, um, in goal, uh, is love because God is love. Um, but we don't always have that desire or that, um, in goal in mind, and it's not always well formed. And so I started thinking about, you know, what is the end in which we have in mind? And oftentimes I feel like specifically in ministry and other areas of life, the end goal that we have in mind when we create a relationship is transactional. It's very rarely with the end goal of loving people well. Um, oftentimes it's what can I receive or, or take um, from this person. And I think there's a lot of things in our culture that make things more transactional, but I, I would say the reason I package that is because that is my end is to love people well, and that's the kind of the goal, that the telos that I'm reaching for. In all of my relationships. So it sounded a little bit like it was a means to them coming to know Jesus, but perhaps it's like coming to know Jesus is like the best thing you can do for them, and that is the way you're loving them. Is that what you mean? Or Yeah, kind of. And, and I, I package things in certain ways, because I do believe that you know words have an immense amount of meanings. And I, I've come out of circles that kind of hyper-rationalize certain, I guess, ministry routes uh, of how they go. If you share the gospel in this certain three-minute presentation and if you 
disciple people in these certain amount of steps, then in X amount of time, you will reach them being a, you know, realized, completed, full disciple. Um, and I think that it's a little bit backwards, you know, it, I, I was really influenced. There's referring back to C.S. Lewis once again. I'll, I'll probably refer to him quite a bit um, today. He opens this uh, kind of essay, which he was giving as a lecture um, uh, through his. I guess it's the way of glory is the essay book there. But he was giving a series of lectures. Uh, I think in the early '40s, and he opens the way of glory with you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but if you would have asked, you know. Or if you ask 19 out of 20 men currently, like today, what is the highest virtue, they would say something along the lines of self-sacrifice or, you know, basically giving of oneself. But if you would have asked any of the saints of old, they surely would have answered love. Um, and I think in a lot of ministry contexts, we've kind of inversed that. We, we've made a, a positive and negative kind of flop, and we've elevated the, the idea of self-sacrifice and really pressing hard at your disciples and you know, really having a systematic, really formulaic way of getting them to view and think and act in the world. And we have neglected that the saints of old would have really loved people deeply and well and had less of a formulaic or systematic approach. Okay, so love and self-sacrifice don't sound too far apart. Um, Like, love is kind of instead of being self-focused on me and my needs and so forth, it's might, it's kind of being sacrificing that for the being focused on somebody else's needs and things, right? Or like, what's the difference there that you're pointing out or, you know, between the virtue of love and the virtue of self-sacrifice? Yeah. I think in many ways they are quite similar and have overlap. Um, but I think with the modern language that we use, Self-sacrifice, um, I think, often becomes more about self, of, of look what I am doing to love this person or, or look what I am doing to um, further the kingdom of God. Whereas love, to me, seems a lot less focused upon self. Um, it allows the person that is loving to sink into the shadows. They don't have to be you know, seen or, or known or, or glorified in that. And so there, there's overlap there, but I think it, it's more of a, one has a negative connotation, one has a, more of a positive connotation. Okay. And um, so love, um, so how, um, well, first of all, like, what do you mean by love? Like, how would you state what love is? Yeah. That's a really <laughs> kind of big question um, in a lot of ways. And we have the simple biblical answer that, that God is love, but I think that that permeates a lot deeper um, in many areas. And so love, I think, oftentimes comes out of desire. Uh, and I think love is not necessarily a, an intellectual assent that we in our minds, you know, concede, okay, this person is nice to me. I like this person. Therefore I'll love them. I I feel like loves are are formed much more on the gut level. Uh, in a sense, uh, we intuit a lot more than I think we would care to know. I think we, we think we function in in such a hyper rational society and such a logical society, but I feel like love is 
it's a desire given by God. I think it's it kind of implicit in every human being um, as they're created in the image of God. But I would say it's the desire given to him, one, to love their neighbor, um, and then the second, you know, the greatest commandment to love the Lord um, is those two things that God gives us that desire towards. Um, and I think love is one of the, and if we're thinking about like the different kinds, um, you know, I think it can be quantified a lot of different ways. And so I, I know I'm getting a little wordy here, but it, as you've sparked this question, it makes me kind of think of the four different loves that Lewis describes in his book. There's um, agape, storge, phylos, and eros. Uh, and I'm pronouncing all those wrong. They're all Greek. Um, so I think God is love, but I think that those loves take multi-dimensions dependent upon the relational capacity in which they're founded in, if that makes sense. Okay. Um. So, um, so then, um, for you, but it seems to be like love is a pretty big thing for you. Um, like, um, so how has, um, like, how have you received love? Um, like, do you feel loved by God? Is that something that, just comes easily or, um, or, and, um, tell me, I guess about that. Um, yeah. Um, I think there's seasons, um, as in every, you know, Christian's walk or every person's life, there's seasons which feel more intimate and and close with the Lord. And there's seasons of dryness and of somewhat despair but I would say generally my disposition is to live in an identity as a son. And I think for me, um, I've never struggled a ton with believing the gospel, which I know is hard for many. And I have many friends that have, and I don't think there's a, a comparison or like a, a, a competition there. Um, but to feel loved by God for me has always felt, I guess, comfortable or at home or just who I am. Um, my identity is not founded in, you know, my accomplishments or what I know, what I think, my knowledge, things of that sort. It's always been a steady identity as a son. And I think a lot of that does like come from, I have a very like lovely and wonderful relationship with my father, my earthly father. He's, he's shown me love, um, you know, for the past 27 years now in a variety of different ways. And I think, it's really easy to kind of make that parallel in my mind and feel loved by God uh, in a similar yet more full way. Yeah. Um, so like the relationship with, do you have brothers and sisters? Um, yeah, I have yeah. one older sister and one older brother. Okay. Uh, what's your relationship with your dad like? Like how has he loved you or how has that relationship been throughout the years yeah yeah it's interesting so my dad is a nasa engineer um he's very i wouldn't say introverted but he, he definitely enjoys time to himself in his shop um and fishing and things of that sort and so it's not always the most expressive uh, in a lot of senses there's 
uh, quite a bit that goes unsaid and did go unsaid at our household growing up. And since, you know, we've all the kids have become adults, specifically me and my dad and my mom have grown a lot closer, um, being able to have conversations about, well, hey, here's some things that you did really well uh, parenting. Here's some things I, you know, maybe don't think you, you did so well. Um, and we've been able to have some of those conversations as uh, I've gotten older. But the one thing that I always saw my dad doing really well is my dad is a person that shows up. It didn't matter what it was. He would catch red-eye flights home from California from work for a baseball game, a church choir recital, whatever it was. And it, so there maybe wasn't always the verbal expression or even the physical expression, but he's a person of commitment. Um, and I think some of the things that are waning in our society is we've become a society that's less and less a people of commitment. We, we won't commit to things. It's very easy to give the 30 second cancel text message or email or whatever it may be. Um, or even just, I've, I've realized among my millennial friends, Plans are never plans until you're actually at the place. Someone could, you know, cancel 30 seconds before, but I think my dad loved us well by, he was there. Um, and just kind of, you knew that, and you knew that he was always going to be there. Hmm. Is your dad a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's a NASA engineer, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, it's pretty interesting, huh? Yeah, he's very nerdy. Yeah. So as far as like confidence and the, the Christian faith, um, is there any particular thing that you that you would point to as far as like this gives me confidence that I'm on truth? Yeah, I mean that's a hard question. I I would say obviously the basic primaries. Um, Lewis calls it the enormous common ground that Christians stand upon. Um, you know the, the essential life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, um, him being the, the perfect sinless sacrifice that, um, you know, came into the world for that specific purpose. I think that's what gives us the confidence from Scripture and the Word of God. Um, but I would say another thing that gives me con- our confidence and something that um, a lot of people don't necessarily like to acknowledge these days, especially my age, is I think the Christian tradition um, from church fathers, church mothers throughout millennia, um, reading widely through them, um, I think gives a confidence of here's thousands of years of people that have communed and walked with God um, deeply and have recorded their prayers and their thoughts. And so I would say coupled with scripture, um, Christian traditions and liturgies give me a lot of confidence as well. Hmm. And just how, it has meant so much to so many people throughout the centuries and or millennia, like you said, that that speaks to something that there's something real to it. I guess I guess that's what you're saying, right? Right. I mean, there's a really interesting scholar right now in, in North India. His name's I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's Vishal Mangalwari, and um, he wrote uh, an interesting book. I think about 20 years ago, uh, I think it's called The Book That Changed the World, specifically. And he traces the um, kind of Christian motifs and themes that emerged in India uh, and how it revolutionized that society specifically. Um, he talks about how people like Jim Carrey, or not, not Jim Carrey, 
Is it Jim Carrey? The guy who went to the first missionary to India. Um, um, William Carrey. William, I, I, yeah, I said Jim Carrey. I'm thinking of yeah. the actor from, what is it? The Truman Show. Oh, not him. William Carrey. Um, how, you know, when he, he went to India, um, started kind of this revolution of actually fighting against some things that were pretty maniacal. They, there was things like widow burning in India um, that would go on when a husband would die. The wife would literally throw herself on the f- funeral pyre and burn herself, which is pretty regularly practiced um, infanticide among girls in India um, as young children. Oftentimes, if they had two or three girls, they would let the third or fourth girl starve because that was dowry. Um, they felt like God had cursed them. And so, um, and he talked about in this book how if you track um, the Christian tradition where different missionaries uh, have gone throughout the, the millennium ages, um, they've actually fought for things in society that overall benefit and, and lead to more justice and, and righteousness within those societies, which I think is really interesting coming from, especially uh, and he, Vishal Mangalwari is Indian. He, he grew up Hindu. Um, coming from someone like him, I think is really interesting to think about that. Yeah, I, I listened to him not long ago. He was talking with Jordan Peterson. Okay, interesting. On Jordan Peterson's podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he was talking about, like we have, like currently there's a big negative colonialism type of thing and uh, attitude toward it. And he talked about some of the positive things that did come about through Western influence, which of course is influenced by Christianity and so forth, but... Right, and I think it even goes deeper than that, though. I think Protestants, and I am Protestant, um, have this habit of thinking of you know the world from 1495 to, to modern day. But I think even if you look at the early church, um, you know, first, second century, um, you have a protection of, of women that are being you know raped and prostituted by the Roman Empire. Um, you have a kind of counterculture to the glorification of gods in Greece, um, like Athena and others that are, are Aphrodite that are glorifying sex and glorifying kind of that lifestyle to you know your body's a temple and it's holy. And there's, you know, oftentimes in modern day, people think that the Christian ideology of sexuality is repressive. Um, but if you look at church tradition, uh, it actually elevates um, this idea of sexuality being a good thing, but a holy and pure thing that is to God. So you see that in the tradition. And then I think moving past that, the the early church into the Middle Ages, which often get a bad rap, um, I think if you look at the monks that were preserving some of the best literature in the world, if it weren't for the monastic movement, you wouldn't have things from Aristotle, from Plato, uh, a lot of the modern kind of cornerstones of Western society and influence. Uh, a lot of the, the Christian tradition within those Middle Ages preserved a lot of that for the world, which I think is a really big win in a lot of ways than it would have been lost. And so I think we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater of all the bad things. And I, I don't necessarily understand why there's such a, a negativity around it, but it seems that there is. I think um, there might be, I think a lot of people might um, feel like there's a conflict with modern science and uh, Christianity, you know, with modern science and the Bible. So that could be um, a part of it. Um, 
do you have any like I don't think um, are you familiar with John Walton who hmm. uh, he um, we teaches at Wheaton and um, he teaches uh, like uh, a lot on how like uh, when Genesis was written there were like other literatures of other people's neighbors that the first recipients of Genesis were familiar with and how um, uh, a lot of Genesis uh, is better understood if it's not um, looked at as like um, an isolated text, but rather as like a response to some of the other worldviews and giving a contrasted worldview. But um, he, he, he mentions how... Um, like we ask questions of the text that um, they wouldn't have even bothered. You know, it's like what that's not what they prim- primarily were wanting to know. It's more of um, their, you know, and we live in a different type of culture. So that's just naturally what we're wanting to know. And the text, we might be trying to get something from the text that it's not really designed to, to give us. And that might be like a part of like... Um, the reason why we see a conflict and so forth. But anyway. Right. Yeah. There's actually a really interesting idea on this. I was just thinking about this yesterday. Um, there was a writer at Oxford a few years before Lewis and was very influential on Lewis uh, named Owen Barfield. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a philologist, um, linguist type, and then he later became a solicitor and actually was the solicitor of Lewis's estate. But he wrote this book called... Um, Poetic Diction, a study on language, where he he traces how different words emerge into our society through poetry. Um, but he came up with this term called logomorphism, uh, and essentially what logomorphism is, and the way he describes it, and I, I may be getting this a little incorrectly, but it's basically ascribing post-logical, post-enlightenment thought to pre-enlightenment, pre-logical societies. Um, mm. And so it's an anachronistically you know, or an anachronistically way to just kind of, I guess, maybe gerrymander what early or ancients were saying about certain texts by ascribing, uh, you know, a, a post-logical thought to them. And so you see it in things like schools of new criticism now that, you know, try to see something like a, say, a, a Marxist critique of Homer. Well, it's like you can't even understand the consciousness in which Homer inhabited in early ancient Greek. And I think that's a lot of what people will do with the Bible as well is they don't necessarily understand that consciousness emerges over time. I believe and there, there's lots of debate on this, but I really do believe that forms of consciousness kind of develop over time. It's not that we get more conscious or less conscious. I think it's a different type of consciousness and the consciousness in which the people of Israel would have observed is so far different than anything we can put our minds around in the 21st century West that we kind of will, will pick and nag at things like science and religion where we're not actually asking the right question about it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so, you know, just the um, the wall that some people have against Christianity that they just can't get over, it seems like, and this is just my own experience talking with people, but um, some people it's like modern science and, and they're just coming from that real heavy scientific 
a way of thinking and judging and so forth. And it's almost like sometimes I think, man, what this person needs is just um, to understand literature better, where they can take the Bible, and um, which is literature, and just know what to do with it <laughs> rather than uh, treat it like their other science textbooks or whatever, you know. Yeah. Why do you think our, our culture is so fact-based and kind of hyper-rationalistic in that? If that if there's not facts provided behind something, if there's not what we'd say hardcore data or research, uh, why do you think we kind of revolt towards disbelief? Um, well, m- maybe it's because we got so many different ideas coming to us and we have a desire for truth and we don't want to get caught up and um, uh, be naive and believe something uh, Pollyannish or something like that. So we want to be hard-nosed and um, take everything to the test. And our way of doing that might be like science. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it could stem from just a desire for, um, for truth, perhaps. Right. And do you think that that desire for truth is innate or do you think it is something that has to be realized or is it something that only a few people figure out? Um, I don't know. I mean, truth is so important. So I don't know how other people feel about it. I mean, we're pretty, we can be pretty subjective and not as objective as what we think we are. And, um, maybe there's so much in the mix, um, that we can't really sort out to know just how objective we are. But I think that we have a desire for truth, or at least it seems to me like truth is so important. Like we're all after it, it seems like, or that's how I feel. Um, So I don't know, was I answering your question or? um, Yeah, I mean, I think I I was listening to something on the way here. Um, It was a talk about um, Tolkien and his motifs of tables, but he, the guy kind of went off on a, a side tangent onto this book called you are what you love, um, hmm. um, by James K. Smith and James K. Smith's been really influential in my thought. And he, from you are what you love. He has another, um, book series called, I think it's just cultural liturgies. And it's a three part, um, series that looks at, uh, it's called imagining the kingdom, desiring the kingdom and awaiting the kingdom, which looks at politics, narrative and imagination, I think, um, and kind of, how, how we go about those. Um, but all that to say, I think that oftentimes um, when we, we think about truth, we're really thinking about like what someone loves per se. And, and I feel like we're much more sub- willing to subjectivize truth if it aligns with what we love. And so he was talking about like cultural liturgies the person that sells you a subscription to watch say sports online um, and spend hours a day watching baseball or football or whatever, um, they don't necessarily care about what you think. Um, they don't necessarily care about truth. Really. They care about what you love. Hmm. And so I wonder, my question is how many people in society don't necessarily really care about truth per se, but really care about, how you're shaped or formed towards the loves that suit their means. Um, well, on a on a like a pr- 
when you're trying to persuade or in a commercial view or dealing with ideas, yeah, there, there might be like fundamental truth over here and we're not concerned about that. We're just trying to get something, you know, do something. So that might be like just totally abandoning truth and just dealing with just love and so forth. But um, I, I do think even people who are seeking that capital T truth, um, that it could be that what a person loves is um, a part of um, how they sort through things. And like, you, you got to make decisions somehow or another. There was um, a person who does, I, I forget his name. Um, he's a French guy who makes uh, Greek Orthodox uh, icons. Mm. And he talks about how um, he used to be kind of more of an evangelical and have a systematic way of evangelism. But now uh, he talks more about like he just tries to show people the beauty of it. It he just bypasses um, the factual. Is this historical, historically factual, and and things like that, or making a rational argument for God? But just look how beautiful this is, yeah. and I think that um, there might be something to that because people um, do make decisions. Um, based on like what they can find hope in. Um, and I think there's something uh, to that. We're not just, I, I don't think we're just super uh, ob- objective, but that we um, we're wanting to, f- you know, fulfill our soul, that longing that we have. And it's like, man, there's something there. There might be just a sliver of the chance, but I'm going to go for it and bet on it and so forth. So, um I don't know. I, I think that love, you know, is a big part of like how we sort through things and decide on things and pursue things and our loves. Right. So it kind of sounds to me like in, in that sense you're talking about is it people looking for that sliver or, or hope of um, beauty and, and perhaps that, you know, those two things, beauty and truth are not as, you know, Mm-hmm. disconnected as we would like to believe is that kind of what you're saying in some ways um yeah um yeah like we're looking like we'll take a chance on something that looks like that one thing that pearl of great price you know that that one thing it it's like um if ever everything else pales in comparison and that just looks beautiful to us like that's that might be a, a a good and real reason to to go on it to bet on it, even if you can't sort through. Well, is this more true or is that more true? Um, you know, that's really hard for anyone to figure out. Um, but it's like, well, there's beauty there. There's something that there's something that could really fulfill my soul if it's true. I'm just going to go for it. Something along those lines. I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling, but right. Well, yeah, and that's where I think we're kind of at a, a hard place in our society is those things in which, you know, people long for or if there's just something there that could fulfill me. Um, I think we've gotten to a place with the kind of the mass consumerism and capitalism that we have in our specific country here in the U.S. Um, and it's spreading globally to an extent. Then we've gotten to a place where the things in which we long or, or think are beautiful or society think are beautiful are actually the antithesis of that. And so 
what do you do when, you know, you have a society full of people that are longing for beauty, for wholeness, for completeness, yet everything in which they're being presented as that um, actually wouldn't be what any one within the past several thousand years up until the past couple centuries would, would classify as that. Yeah. Well, you, I think you show it to them. Um, like, um, it's, you know, the things that people are trying to satisfy themselves with maybe would pale in comparison if they just tasted the real thing. And like, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know what people's hearts are like, but it seems like, um, the, the love of God, like being fully loved, experiencing that, just having that is, you know, it's the only thing that can meet that really fundamental deep need. I, so I don't know if everyone can sense that. And like if it was just revealed to them, like they'd say, yes, that's what I want. Or if people are kind of different like that. But um, yeah, if they could... Um, Maybe if they could see that, um, and maybe, you know, you talked about loving people to the end of them knowing Jesus. I think that's how you put it, or something like that. It's like, so if they can see the love of God in us for them, um, and I think that can only come from us if we are just really caught up in the love of God and we just feel fully loved. Because when it's just coming out of willpower, um, I heard someone mention, um, like, that might be over at 9 a.m., you know, what do you do the rest of the day, you know? Um, but, like, if we are so fully loved that and cared for and, like, we can just um, forget ourselves. And I'm not at that place, you know, um, but that I can just pour out my love for, towards someone else, you know, it might give them, like, it might be something strange uh, to them and just a glimmer of, like, like, what is this? And it might draw their eyes to the God who offers this kind of a love. Um, so I guess that is in response to like what you were speaking about, like people going after the, um, the false counterfeit type of thing. You know, they need to see the real, perhaps. Now, will that, is that what people really want deep down? I don't know. It seems that really resonates with me, um, but I don't know. You know, maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. So it kind of sounds like what you're describing to me is that people kind of feel love in a sense that's more less on a, a head level and an intellectual level, and more on a tangible, um, you say gut level, you could say a level of the tangible things like whether it's beauty within a painting or beauty within a relationship um, that people kind of get those perceptions not per se just from intellectual assent is that what you're saying but it's more so from like a, a tangible bodily sense w would you classify that or would you say it's both in which people get an accurate perception and accurate feel for what love is I think, like, um, I think you were mentioning, like, art or beauty, or painting or whatever. That seems to, it's like communication when words fail us and we're trying to touch upon the, the, the transcendent, you know, that beyond us, that, 
something that I think is just of God, but um, so I think that um, that can maybe alert us to like there's something there's something there there's something um, you know can be used by God maybe to open our eyes to. Um, yeah, what were you asking again? Uh, yeah, it's just kind of if if love is less of an intellectual ascent on, on the mind part and that we're more inclined to know actual what love is by the, the tangible things, whether it's you know, the sight and the beauty of a picture, whether it's the kind touch of a friend or whatever it may be, that it almost functions on more of a bodily level than we would care to acknowledge. I think it's maybe just a longing that we have if we're built in God's image and, you know, it kind of makes sense. We long for that relationship that has been broken and maybe these other things that we, that might kind of touch upon the otherworldly or something, it just kind of confirms to us deep down, like, hey, there's something, there's something there. But I think we're, maybe we're just, and it might stir it up in us, but I think it's just, um, you know, something that we have. And bodily, um, yeah, I think it's bodily. I mean, I think um, it's like this longing that we have. Um, you talk about Augustine um, uh, talking about how we are um, restless until, um, let's see, who's this? Uh, feel restless until we... Um, um, find our rest in God. Um, but, um, so I think that, um, we have that, uh, longing, um, for God, um, that involves being loved by him and loving him in return. And, um, I don't, uh, I don't know if, uh, so, you know, I was just going to ask you, like, do you feel like you're there or you're like, um, I don't feel like I'm there. I feel like I've just tasted it. And I'm reminded of, um, YouTube Bono's song. Um, I still haven't found what I'm looking for (laughs) Yeah, because there's still that longing. Um, but I think maybe even uh, C.S. Lewis mentions kind of, um, this, uh, longing as, um, something that's uh, a sign that were made for something else or something along those lines. But anyway, I forget where that started. Yeah. So were you asking me though, specifically? Yeah. Like, how is it for you? As far as the feeling of, of love or, or those things. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it definitely fluctuates. I mean, probably better to ask my wife Cassidy than than me, how, (laughs) how I feel about it on certain days. Um, I think it's a difficult thing to maintain not because we have to maintain it. God is always in pursuit of us, um, but because we're finite and, and our finitude, you know, on specifically poor days really comes out to, to bear. Um, and I think that, you know, while we're alive, we kind of feel like we're going to you know, live a long time and do a lot of things, um, but our, our time is short. And I think when the weight of finitude really bears down on me, uh, as times in which I am less in the state of, of feeling loved or, or cared for or known by God. You mean when you're uh, dealing with like um, 
your mortality or something like that? Yeah, dealing with mortality, dealing with that I'm not God. <laughs> you know, I, I cannot know all and see all, um, and that I am far more selfish than I would care to realize. I think in those times, and I think even just, you know, I've only been married a month, and Cass and I dated for a while, and I think God really brings a lot of that out in, in relationships of, of feeling, whoa, you're actually far more selfish than you would have ever cared to believe. Um, so I feel like that's the times in which I don't necessarily feel it. But what's interesting about that is the inverse of that is in relationships when you feel that selfishness, there's also a part of relationships where you feel the most fulfilled and the closest to being loved by God of that that person sees, especially with Cassidy in my life, she sees my selfishness, my ignorance, my belligerence. Um, I am very quick to shove my foot down my throat. Um, very, very quick. And she sees all of that and yet continues to, you know, love me well. And you have these and these giftings of whether it's the intellect or your argumentation or the things you like to read and being able to expound on ideas. Um, and you know, I really believe she'll say, you know, she'll tell me, I, I believe that in those things that, that God has gifted you in those things, I'm just here to kind of help let the blows land a little more softly uh, on people that you're around while you're, you're doing that. And I think, you know, that, that relationship really does bring out a lot of, um, the best sides of being loved and the worst sides of it. And I think that is, you know, a part that's really interesting, kind of new to me that I'm parsing out these days. How do you, um, grow, um, like, um, yeah, I guess in your character, in your ability to love others, that's one way. And then I'd also like to ask you, how do you grow? Like you're really well-read. Is that a systematic thing, or is it like just carrying a book around, squeezing it in whenever you have a few minutes, or or what? So anyway, let's start with which either one you want. Yeah. Um, I'll start with the latter and then move to the former, because okay. um, I think the latter entails the former. Um, I... Not necessarily systematic. I'm more thematic. Um, and I view certain authors as kind of like my guide. So if you you know, think about Dante's Inferno, he has Virgil leading him around. I think like flippantly people read that and they're kind of like, oh, that's weird. Like why is you know, Dante allowing this century millennia old poet to like lead him through um, these different levels that he's going through? And But I think it's an ode really to... Um, Virgil as a writer as kind of the father of Latin literature per se. Um, and so I, I have several influences reading wise that I kind of view as fathers um, in a sense and kind of allow their reading in a lot of ways to, to dictate my reading. And so I, I think primarily um, first and foremost would be C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, kind of the folks that were in the Oxford movement in the forties Uh, As you read them, they diverge into, you know, copious amounts of other literature. And so um, they'll get into the Victorians, they'll get into the Nordic tales, they get into the ancients. uh, And as you read, you get curious as, okay, this is the third time that Lewis has referenced Aeneas. Maybe I should read, you know, who Aeneas was. Maybe I should go back and... You know, I also get into Homer, get into Iliad, the Odyssey, um, the Aeneid, all those. And, and so you start to branch off or, you know, 
reading people like uh, another father I would consider would be a little bit before Chester or a little bit before Lewis Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. Um, you know, he writes all these literary criticisms about Dickens and about Austin and the Brontes and, um, and as you read those guys and you see them kind of expound, it makes you curious. And so, um, I've always been a quite curious person. And so as I've kind of parsed my way through all those, um, I've just gone down trails where there'll be months and months and months where I'm reading one influence after another. And it's really fun because you know, I read several years ago, probably three or four years ago, I read almost everything Lewis had written, both his scholarly stuff, um, which is really good. He's got a book, um, about literary criticism. Um, I think it's, uh, I'm blanking on the name right now, but uh, where he basically, you know, talks about how to read well, um, and he gives all these different examples. Um, but a few years ago, I, I read all of like, the scholarly stuff on that side, and then his, his fiction, his commentary, all those things, and it gave me insights into these other authors, um, specifically George MacDonald, that Lewis says that not a single one of his books was written without some piece of MacDonald being there. Um, and you think, oh, that's interesting. This person that produced 60-some-odd books gives so much credit to this kind of relatively obscure Scottish mm-hmm. you know, author who lived in pretty, not destitute poverty, but you know, lived in semi-poverty and wrote fairy tales. Mm-hmm. We're like, hmm, that, that's interesting. And then you go and read you know, something like, I think it's called Fantastic or Fantasties by MacDonald, and you see, whoa, here are four or five major themes from Plato. Here are four or five major themes in pretty much all of Lewis's work that is being carried out from this fairy story. Um, and so with that, so coupling on to the latter or the, the former part of the question that started, uh, how does that shape character? Well, I think, you know, I was reading this the other day. Um, what is literature about? Well, the reason that we're so fed up and kind of the about modern literature is it's no longer about what literature has always been about, and that's about the human soul and the wrestling that goes on in, in the human soul. Um, modern literature is more about things that are novel, things that are obscure, out of the ordinary, but as you know, you've read some Chesterton, the things that are most fascinating are not the, the novel of the obscure. They're the, the common you know, weight of a man's soul, his morality, his mortality, how he wrestles with that. And so as you read great literature, and it it talks about the human condition and the human soul, I think things within character are are developed. It was actually reading um, bits and pieces of Aristotle from Lewis. Lewis referenced him a lot. I read a book called After Virtue by Lester McIntyre, who is Aristotelian in his thought. Um, And he references... Aristotle quite a bit, so I went back and read Poetics and some other stuff from Aristotle, and it talks about the the cardinal virtues, um, which I think are fortitude, temperance, um, courage, and there's one more. I'm forgetting, but there's four cardinal virtues. And so if you think about dwell on those virtues, I think that's something that modern people don't do very much. You're dwelling on, okay... They thought to reach this eudaimonia, what Aristotle calls it, this the good life, happiness, um, was entailed in these four virtues. Okay, um, well, I can't necessarily attain those virtues on my own. Um, I'm far too selfish and, and finite to do so. And the, the ancients couldn't attain those either. They tried in many different ways and still utterly failed oftentimes. 
Well, I think that's what's the beauty of the scripture that comes in is those virtues can be coupled with, and it's not a synthesis, but it's, a, I think, a, a common grace that can be coupled with things like faith, hope, and love. Um, and you see that the, the ancient virtues also kind of intertwine and are more developed and more fulfilled in a lot of Paul's writings of what the Christian virtues are. Um, and so I would say it's a, it's a very roundabout answer. I know I'm kind of getting um, wordy here, but I would say that good literature makes you ask the questions, if we're here, why? And then you go search them out, and they, they point to lots of different directions. Um, and while they're pointing in many different directions, they're also also still pointing in the same direction. And that's, if we're here, we need to know why. If a man has a soul, we need to know how he preserves that soul. If a man has to act in the world, or a woman has to act in the world, we need to know how or why. Um, and so I would say that's been formative in my character uh, of seeing those motifs, those symbols, those virtues. Um, and yeah, it's been formative for me. Hmm. I know that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Aristotle and virtues, and I've read um, Cicero, maybe? He wrote, uh, I read some kind of little thing on, um, on duties. That's what it was. Um, so these were kind of people who were into virtue. Um, they were into like uh, good character and so forth. And there's Aurelius, you know, the um, so that might be second century. Um, and sometimes I I hear about just the contrast of Christianity to um, everything else and how well we even talked about it, you know, just how it it's so different. But then I kind of consider some of these. Uh, other, you know, they're into doing good and being a good friend and stuff like that. But um, maybe there's more of a contrast in um, being um, loving to the undeserving, perhaps um, to the um, to those who, um, yeah, who don't deserve it or something like that. I, and maybe that's where Christianity kind of shines as being more unique. Just from your um, experience with uh, literature, um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, um, the the virtues fail and get morphed when they're not actually set upon a fundamental telos and end goal and truth. Um, and so I think you had some common grace and people go back and forth on this. There's like the Augustinian view of common grace and the Tertullian view of common grace, which, you know, is essentially like Augustine is a little more common grace is everywhere. It can be found in the ancient writing. It can be found through all these different contours of society. Whereas Tertullian is a little more like scripturally based. It's, it's nowhere outside. There, there's nothing mm-hmm. that exists that is good for people outside of this. And Christians will debate that back and forth kind of all day. Um, but I think why the, the project of even some of the ancients and um, other people that have been really fixated on virtue failed is because the end goal was not necessarily specified. Um, I mean, Aristotle had this idea of eudaimonia. Uh, it can be translated as happiness, not a great translation. Um, more like the complete inner wholeness but what brings that 
if there is no relationship with the transcendent, if, if there's nothing to set that wholeness upon that is outside of human, the finite human that is sinful and, and depraved and, and has lots of things messed up going on, then your virtues are, are going to fall short. And I think that's where the, the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love um, have such a, a grounded basis in the person and the character of God uh, apart from being virtuous just to be well-liked or, or received in society um, because that, that ends and it comes and goes and it ebbs and flows depending upon what is the primary symbol or spirit of the age in which you associate and that can change very fast. And so unless there's a transcendent, what is virtuous today likely won't be virtuous tomorrow. Um, and I think that's where Christian history having a set virtue that doesn't change um, because it's based on the character of God is quite unique. Okay. So, um, so I was really, um, I was just, you know, your wedding speech made an impression on me, like, uh, you know, just talking about, so anyway, it kind of shows forth your love for God, your love for the gospel and wanting to share that and so forth. Um, so I guess, you know, how has that been as far as, you know, just in your interaction with other people, is the gospel um, re- uh, pretty well received or is, what's your experience as far as sharing it with others? And um, like, is there any kind of, unique way God has made you or put you in as far as situations and so forth that um, is kind of unique for, you know, being a conduit of the gospel message and so forth. Um, I don't know, just anything there. Yeah. um, I think specifically for me, I've had... I was someone in my early twenties was very idealistic and um, to this day, I still have a trouble with like when I get on a certain topic or a certain theme or a certain thinker or writer or whatever it may be, I kind of go all in. Um, and so for me, it's ebbed and flowed. Whereas early on right out of college, I was very utilitarian in how I thought about, sharing the gospel and loving people was very much like, like I said, this three minute presentation, you've got to do this, this and that. And if you get this wrong down the line, this is the thing that's going to happen and so on and so forth. And I do think there is a methodical approach. We see it in Paul. Paul's very, very strategic. He's not randomly going places. Um, He's not randomly doing things. And so I think there is a lot of truth there. I just don't think that it's, the whole picture as well. I don't think we were able to see the interactions in which Paul has with the churches or which Jesus has with the disciples. I don't think we're able to understand what it means to be at a table in a first century Jewish context. I, I think we're, we're so far removed from that in, in our mind that it's really, really hard to understand we can understand the strategy. We can understand that the gospel needs to be shared. We can understand that you know we need to plant churches, and these churches need to be healthy, and that they need to be scripturally based, and that like that's our authority, and all these things. And they're really good things. These are all things that we need to have a simple understanding of. But I think what 
we lack and what I found was a lack oftentimes was that being able to sit at a table, sit in a living room, listen and serve whoever is in your presence. And so perhaps it's a lack of hospitality in a lot of ways, um, especially from people my age. Um, and so what I've found to be really effective, and I did this a lot in college, having a meal in your home for someone, um, we'd invite international students over quite a bit, um, and having a, a full meal that you cook for them, having tea, um, being able to sit around and have uninhibited conversation, that for them, for the people we're ministering to, and for ourselves, um, felt so much more whole and loving and, and in depth than uh, a three minute on the street, let me pull you over type of thing. Not that God can't work through that. I think he legitimately does. I think he gives some people that gifting. Um, and I think some people are just ready when they uh, hear. Right, so I think we need a variety within the kingdom. But the way that my temperament um, I, that I've learned is I'm not someone that is really great at that. I'll do that if the, if the Lord says to there's a, there's a Lordship thing about that. Like, yeah, if he tells me to. Yes, and I still try to start conversations with people that will lead to spiritual things. Um, but I've found maybe a more effective method is around the table, um, is within the home, uh, expressing the things that are, are near and dear to our hearts. And so that's, that's one way that I feel really confident in expressing love. And then another way, if I do want to, you know, maybe it's a random stranger that I meet out and want to do it a little more quickly, I found something that has worked better for me is like, hey, my name's Seth. Um, thanks so much for bringing up my groceries. Uh, I just really felt led to, to pray for you today. Is there anything going on in your life that I can pray for? If not, it's totally cool. You know, I just wanted to let you know that I love you and I want to pray for you. And I found that that will open up spiritual doors and conversations um, pretty quickly in, in a lot of ways. So those are kind of my two ways that I feel most able to give love through hospitality or through just a quick can I say a blessing, a prayer for you, if it needs to be a little more on the fly? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Um, when doing that, um, has that led to like um, sometimes like a long-term, longer relationship of m- more interaction and stuff after that little short time? Yeah. Frame? In college, I would say a lot more. Um, on the university campus, you, you stop and you pray for someone and everyone's kind of the same stage of life and you know if they want to hang out afterwards or meet at the commons the next day or whatever it may be is really easy i found it to be more difficult and uh, i've lived in two bigger cities in the u.s um in nashville and now in st louis and i've found people's time is much more sparse um people are, are much more closed off uh and so I think a lot of it is culturally with, with time. Um, but if God's preparing someone's heart, they will continue on with wanting to, to meet with you or to see you or to spend time with you. And a lot of people in college, we actually saw several churches start in different people's homes from we met some people out, prayed for them. They had you know fallen away from the faith 10 years ago and felt like they needed to come back. And they have five roommates that they all wanted to share this with and, and we actually saw um, yeah some churches started that way and uh, so we have seen some fruit from that um, in cities I've noticed with international folks people immigrants or refugees coming from elsewhere 
they're a lot more receptive and open to that and are hospitable and want to spend more time. It seems like the modern American worker that's really busy is less open to that. Yeah. You were mentioning, um, you know, being around the table and talking. I've been listening to a podcast recently by John Mark Comer, Practicing the Way. Mm-hmm. And he's from, um, uh, it's Bridgetown Church. Yeah. Yeah. I've right. heard of him. I know he, I think he left Bridgetown about a year ago, but I've listened to some of his stuff. Okay. Yeah. So he talks a lot about that. And here recently, um, he's talking about, you know, being a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus and um, abiding in Jesus. So being with him. And um, so this was interesting. So when I normally think of abiding in Jesus, I think of like, well, abiding in what he's provided for me, his love, the Father's love, acceptance, and living in that. And I think that's probably, there's something to that. That might be the main thing. But he talks about, um, you know, we can probably uh, do that best if we're um, imitating Jesus's lifestyle also, which I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. But I guess that kind of takes some nuance and discernment. But like some things, it does make sense. Like, we can be like super hurried. And um, I think Cindy, um, she has like a little thing up on her uh, wall I've seen before about how being in hurry is the end of kindness or something like that, you know. But um, other things that have to do with Jesus's lifestyle um, might help us to know his love better, know the Father's love better, and to be abiding in him, growing. things like um, just always being focused on um, on God uh, or on the Holy Spirit and in in all that we're doing and um, and and he exhibited that like with um, when the disciples were um, he was talking to the woman at the well and the disciples said you know aren't you interested in food and he said you know I I got the spiritual food you know and it's just doing what the father um, has for me to do or something along those lines. So it's like just, you know, focusing on what's the father doing and that's what I'm doing. And so that's a part of a lifestyle of Jesus that can be imitated. Yeah. And I think that goes back to kind of what we were dancing around earlier with the, the bodily element uh, of our faith. I think James K. Smith references this quite a bit, but I think, Another author that's really been influential in my thinking about some of the things about a table, about food, about um, communal sharing of love towards Jesus is Wendell Berry, who um, is a farmer in Kentucky, and he he writes quite a bit about our relationship with food. But he also writes, and and he's more in his fiction that he kind of plays this theme of... um, Oftentimes, especially in the, the, the Protestant tradition, we want to remove the body, the element from the way we share love, the way we share the gospel, those kind of things. We almost see the body as this stained flesh that's just good for nothing and kind of cut off. Um, and so there's just this longing of, if we can just get to heaven, we can just get past our finite earthly home, like to heaven, like all will be well. But Barry talks about how if God gave us the body for things like eating and fellowship and hmm. communication, God would not give us a thing that's not good. It's not to say that it can't be serviced and used for bad things. I mean, it certainly can. Um, but there is a, an element of holiness w- within our body. Um, and I think people understand when we share that. Um, 
in a bodily sense. I think that's why meals are really impactful. I think that's why Jesus ate a bunch with people and sat around a lot, just talking and communicating. And to even build on that point, James K. Smith talks about how we're not simply thinking thingisms, what he calls it, but that we're actually highly liturgical animals. And liturgy, essentially meaning worship, is often done with the body. When you read a prayer out loud, you know, you read the the 51st Psalm, have mercy on me, O God. Like when you open with that and you hear the, the cadence of that, uh, of David crying out, there's a bodily resonance with that that is similar to me sitting in a, a living room too and saying with my mouth to a friend, hey, I really value you and I'm thankful for the way you're wrestling through this or thinking through that. There's such a, I think, a beauty in the body that's been marred. Um, and so I would just be curious to ask you, why, why do you think that is that we've taken some of the beauty of bodily elements, whether it be a table or words that we use conversation, some of these beautiful liturgies and kind of try to remove ourselves from them in the Protestant tradition. Well, you mentioned uh, getting away from the body is our ultimate uh, home, but that's, you know, that's not true. We're, you know, so it could be like a doctrine problem, um, but we are, you know, our final home is bodily um, with the resurrection. Um, and, um, um, I know for me, um, like from just my experience, um, making a meal, um, uh, distracts me too much. I'm too much uh, concerned about the food and uh, how everyone's doing. And, um, and I'm more engaged with a person when it's just me and another person face-to-face. Coffee works out better for me as far as sharing hospitality um, and uh, spending time with another person. Um, besides that, you know, I eat weird and stuff like that. But uh, maybe you <laughs> also um, have some similarities to that. But um, as far as the bodily thing... Um, I don't know. Um, I'm interested in experiencing that more than I do. Um, I'm more idea um, into ideas and thinking, having my journal open, tra- tracing a thought and stuff like that. But recently, um, I, ha- I have experienced a little bit more of bodily involvement in just praying and just my motions, um, because I've been reading some of the Psalms and thinking, you know, we, a lot of times we read the word to take in information, but I, I want to, the idea hit me that, um, I want to, um, um, have these words resonate with me so much that they're coming out of me to God so that they can kind of become my words and, um, and I noticed that my body started working with that. Like, you know, like even when um, I'm not voicing the words, but I'm just wanting to express something to God, it's like I'm doing it bodily. You know, I'm just by myself. But it's like my body's moving in certain ways, that, and that's what's happening when I'm wanting to express something. So I don't know. Um, I'm interested because we are, I heard someone say, embodied souls. It's not like we... Um, we got this soul part and a body part. I mean, this is just how God created us. We're 
we're physical and um and it is holy and um we need i think it is good to embrace that and in every part of our being to be um resonating um with god and re- re- reflecting that back um with our bodies and our minds and all that we are but, yeah and i think you know that's interesting so james k smith who i've wrestled quite a bit today he he reads a, a passage in one of his books i forget which one it is but he reads a passage from a book that i really like um by graham green um which is it's essentially i think it's maybe called the heart of the affair or something of the sort um no, he's got one book called the end of the or the heart of the matter, and then this one's the end of an affair. Is what he's called, and, it, and it's kind of a, a dark book. Graham Greene's a mid forties British writer. He's Catholic, um, and as he's writing, and he writes about this woman who's having this affair, and and she stumbles into a church one day, and uh, she sees kind of the crucifix. She sees you know, the icon of Christ bleeding on the cross. Um, and she starts to have this inner dialogue with herself about if Christ was just a vapor, if he was just something ethereal, um, like I couldn't believe it. Like I, I wouldn't be able to associate with that, but like Christ is a body here before me and I'm a body and I, I can't think but of the shame and the guilt in which I brought upon my body by having this affair. Um, surely it would only be something also like me that has a body that could take that, that could, you know, perhaps make my body clean, perhaps, you know, restore that. And I thought that was really interesting. It, And I think Catholics do a much better job of this, uh, of having that, that bodily emphasis, um, that Christ is not just ethereal and it's gone wrong in some ways of creating icons that are more idols in certain cultures and places. But I do think there's a really true and good and whole representation of, of that bodily element that allows us to, to shape our loves and form our loves. Like you were talking about with the Psalms and, and the embodiment of things like kneeling, beating upon your chest. I'm not you know saying that you have to do that, but I think those are certain things that are, worshipful to God that we can only kind of learn through the body and not through kind of a ethereal matter. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, just a second. Was that the voice trying to get hold of me? Okay. I told okay. Back. okay. Thanks. Um, yeah. So it's hard for me to, like, I don't have much experience with that, but it appeals to me. Um, uh, you know that that whole thing, and what Jesus gave us—the the bread and the wine—I mean, that's a pretty bodily thing, as far as like a way to in, in connect and engage with Him and remember and uh, proclaim His death until He comes, or something along those lines. So. Right? Have you heard of the kind of? I think it's an Eastern Orthodox tradition of um, it's called theosis. Are you familiar with that term? I may have heard it before, but I can't think of what it is right now. Yeah, they're they're far more sacramental than we are and far more creedal which I think has lots of really good implications for it but theosis is kind of the participation in the divine life and Protestants don't like to acknowledge it because it can go south if the person becomes divine essentially so a lot of people have taken it and like but it's saying you do participate in the divine life through things like the sacraments um, and that that is part of like why the Lord's table is such a a visceral and on a gut level 
worshipful act um, because it is that, that, that participation in the divine life through the body. Um, and I think it's something that's lacking in a lot of more hyper-rational, hyper-utilitarian, like developed, reformed Western tradition that I think we could find a lot from if we, we right. dug into it more. Right. Yeah. We're so much just caught up in our heads, ideas, thinking, and stuff like that. It seems like, and I tend to be that maybe even more than others. I think maybe introverted people t- perhaps tend to be that. I'm, I'm not for sure, but. Yeah. And I know we're probably getting close to um, time, but I would be curious just to hear your, your thoughts on why do you think that, particularly, I find it mostly within the reform tradition um, as someone who's reformed myself, but I see this a lot in people that are, I'm around and, and that there is this hyper rationalizing hyper, I call it like a, the word I describe to it as a theological pristinism. I know pristinism is not necessarily a word, but there's almost this, I have to have all my ducks in a row theologically um, and Everything has to be, you know, there's commentaries that fill up rooms that, you know, work out these ideas. And there's very little room for mystery, very little room for um, a gut level bodily reaction towards things. Why do you think the Reformed Church, or I say Reformed Church, but people that tend to be a little more Reformed think along those lines? Well, it's attractive to be able to. Um, have something that you can grasp and it all, you know, you have answers. It fits kind of neatly. Something that um, I've thought about here recently is um, the way God expresses himself um, to Moses was, um, you know, when he says, uh, he sends him to Pharaoh and Moses says, who shall I say sent me to tell him I am or something along those lines. It's like, the most uh, essential thing to know about God is just that He is, mm-hmm. and um, and not so. And like the, the making of idols and so forth, to try to represent God is almost like trying to make Him something that we can grasp, you know, and um, we can look at and say He's like this or He's like that, um, but. Um, you know, of course, there's uh, such a gulf that there's no way to to grasp. You know, we're just as creatures, and we have to um, uh, such a, a difference between creator and creature. Um, but um, when it comes, you know, the why of like a, a system that's pristine and all fits fits together, and uh, and not comfortable with just leaving things a mystery and not knowing. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think we're idealistic. Um, we um, we want to um, we're seeking truth, which is good, um, and uh, it, it's a way of um, feeling like we got it or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, do you have any thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, and something I've been trying to parse out in my my head for quite a while, I would say that I was very much, like, 
in a, a hyper-rational state earlier in my, my walk. And as you have experiences with God throughout your life, I, I feel like it in some ways leads you more and more to that. And I think specifically living, living overseas changed my psyche on that. The Eastern and Western mind is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I lived for about three years in South Asia. And in that time, you, you see God work in ways that you can't necessarily describe. You see a, a demon cast out of someone and you don't necessarily always have a theology for that or how that happened or mm-hmm. where that goes. I and mean, there's stories and examples in the Bible of it, but um, you see a much more integrated I found among believers in South Asia specifically, among some, there's a much more integrated approach that is less hyperfactual, hyper-intellectual, and, and more an embodied, um, incarnate type of faith. And so I think, and perhaps it's because we, as a society, have become more insular. We We especially in the West can go into our garage, go into our home. We can isolate. We're less integrated. Um, and then probably ever before, I think, and we do spend more time alone thinking or, or hypothesizing per se. Um, maybe that's why I don't know that I have an exact answer for it, but I, I've never felt satisfied with the hyper rational argument. I remember Augustine, I was reading him earlier on. Um, this is the first time I really contemplated this idea. He, he said, you know, if there's, and I'm paraphrasing, if there's ever a mystery that is too profound or too deep or too unfathomable for me to know about God, rather than lament and, and you know, worry, I rejoice in knowing that the God I worship is infinite, um, that he does not fit the bounds of that. And I think people are uneasied by that specific that it's not always quantifiable and I I think that doesn't sit well with a lot of people in a more scientific fact driven age that Mm -hmm. you can't quantify this thing yeah well um, so what do you find satisfying in your life hmm Yeah. I mean, there's the the old man in me answer of reading my books, reading poetry, sitting by my garden, gardening, going for walks. Um, it sounds pretty satisfying. I, I, yeah, you know, things, uh, spending time with Cassidy just in conversation, sitting on our patio, things of that sort. And that's kind of the generic answer, but I think that underneath all of those things is as we alluded to earlier, a longing for, for beauty, for goodness, for truth, for, um, uh, a contentment. And so I think, um, the things I find most satisfying or what satisfies me would be the contentment I find in the beautiful things in life. And I think they are far more common than novel uh, in a lot of senses. And so, I would say something, you know, and I learned this more from Chesterton. Um, I think from Chesterton and um, Lewis and part of the simple domestic mundane things being really satisfying, um, pulling weeds from a garden or walking around the neighborhood. I I live in the central West End, and 
the architecture is stunning in that neighborhood. There's the Basilica behind my house. Um, there's all kinds of little well-groomed parks. A lot of the houses at the turn of the century. T.S. Eliot's house is actually a block behind it. It's his childhood home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just going and wondering at those and seeing the beauty um, and the architecture there and knowing that God gave someone the mind to be able to craft things beautifully uh, in that sense. Um, I find that to be all very satisfying. And then relationally, um, friendship. Um, I have a few really good friends that I've been close with for almost a decade now. And um, yeah, deep conversations within friendship. And it's really interesting because Cassidy is one of those friends that I've, you know, we, we were friends for eight years before we started dating and got married. And so we've had a deep and satisfying friendship for years now. Um, and so finding satisfaction in, in the rhythms and the daily life um, of things with her now is really fun as well. And so I'd say, yeah, those are the majority of the things. Um, satisfaction is something that's kind of lost in our culture oftentimes. Um, but little small domestic things make me content for the most part. Cool. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you want to bring up before we just kind of wrap up for now? Um, I have one more question. So and this is an idea that I've been trying to, to parse out that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Um, I, I just recently read a book called the triumphs of the therapeutic, um, by Philip Marief. And, um, he, he had basically, a, his hypothesis is that our culture, um, the reason that we're not satisfied, the reason that we are kind of angsty and anxious um, is because we've lost shared symbols um, of what our culture shares in, in common. We've, we've become disintegrated in a lot of ways and that we're, we're more dissatisfied than ever um, because we're more satiated by ourselves and our desires for whimsical things, spectacle. He says... I think somewhere, um, I'm trying to remember the quote um, exactly. He says, I'll just read a, a section from this. Um, this will kind of be my ending question. Um, so if I can find it. Uh, oh, just miss it. So this is a, a excerpt from Philip Brief and his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. He says, At the breaking point, a culture can no longer maintain itself as an established span of moral demands. Its jurisdiction contracts. It demands less and permits more. Bread and circuses become confused with right and duty. Spectacle becomes a functional substitute for sacrament. Massive regressions occur, with large sections of the population returning to levels of destructive aggression historically accessible to it. At times of impending transition to a new moral order, Symbolic forms and their institutional objectifications change their relative weights in that order. Competing symbolisms gather support in competing elites. They jostle each other for priority of place as they organize, or as the organizers of the next phase in the psychohistorical process. So I know that's a lot there, um, but unpacking. So I think a, a big part of our dissatisfaction is is kind of a loss of some symbolic meaning um, in certain ways. As someone that's, you know, lived through several different decades of, of time, 
do you think there's, do you think one that we've lost that, that meaning? Um, and do you think there is any way in which our culture can return to being satisfied um, and being integrated in a way that shares symbols and, and meaning or is, or is it kind of a lost cause or a moot point? So the, the common symbols, um, I don't know, I guess maybe what he means is like, we're kind of, is it like postmodern where we all just do our own thing and find our own truth, our own meaning, and we don't have that, those common things in culture that unite us? Is that Somewhat, but it's also the transition of symbols that were more sacramental um, or more meaningful um, to spectacle, to circus, to, you know, entertainment culture or whatever it may be. Um, he talks about how right and duty have, you know, been substituted for bread and circus. And so essentially I think he's saying that we're satisfied progressively more and more with less and less substance. And so my question would be, do you think that to be true? And if so, what is the prognosis and and way forward? Well, you know, I don't know if I'm the right person to have my, uh, you know, to be checking the, knowing the pulse of our modern culture and society and stuff. But, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, uh, f- just not having like a foundational uh, home for our soul in, in God seems like it would leave us, leave us kind of wandering and trying to um, pursue this, pursue that, pursue self-help, have various ambitions and stuff like that. Um, I think uh, fear naturally becomes a part of all of that because um, uh, we're not resting in God. Um, And uh, so there would be that lack of peace. Um, um, So so as far as like culture, is there a way to that? Um, So I'm not really – I don't know if I – I'm sure I don't fully understand kind of his where his train of thought, but um, you know I think the answer would be just what what God offers us, mm-hmm. you know, um, as the Scripture says, He's given us everything for life and godliness, and um, He's giving a, a, us a home for our soul, and um, it's more of a matter of. Um, grasping it, you know, like receiving it. Um, sometimes um, fears or other things like the parable of the sower and those thorns, the cares and deceitfulness of riches, you know, those other things that uh, choke it out and don't give it room, perhaps, um, spiritual life and receiving all that he he offers and, and just being able to rest in that. So is there hope um, along those lines? Yeah, there's gospel hope. Um, Otherwise, um, as far as, you know, even if um, culture were to um, 
kind of become more unified and um, maybe virtuous and so forth, um, you know, there would be, um, there could still be that missing thing. And sometimes um, in my own life, um, that's when I kind of recognize that there, there is something, there would be something missing without God. It's like when everything's kind of coming into place, those few times where, um, hey, everything's kind of working out. And, um, and then I kind of realize, but that wouldn't be enough if that's all it was. It's kind of when things are not working out, it's like we're more deceived, I think, and think, well, if we can just get this, we can do that, we can do this, then, you know, everything would be great. But, um, but then when we get what we're after, then we realize, hey, that wasn't enough. There's something mm-hmm. foundational. But anyway, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Right. Okay. Yeah, I know that's kind of a maybe a little bit off the cuff, strange question, but it's something I've just been mulling on quite a bit. Of Do you have any thoughts about it? Not that I've been fully fleshed out. Um, I've just been more contemplating and somewhat lamenting a little cynically, which I know I should not, but the loss of um, things that are sacramental, that are, are sacred, that are good, that are beautiful. Um, he also talks about in his work that um, when things that in one society or one time um, were iconoclastic or regressive um, shift and become the sign of progress or the sign of flourishing is when a revolution has essentially been unleashed. And, um, I see a lot of that, a lot of things that were ugly, nasty considered through most of history to be regressive and, and not great for society are now glorified and things that were once considered beautiful, lofty, true, and good that provided and led towards human flourishing have now kind of been demoted or seen as regressive and, prudish and and so I've just been really trying to parcel out that hmm. and then that coupled with the spectacle and circus of our society of why and even in my own life like why do I want to watch three hours of a baseball game why you know like rather than read something beneficial or spend time with a neighbor what about me finds it easier to do that because I will do that occasionally and and so I'm just kind of, kind of mulling around, and that's just yeah, kind of don't have a solution for it. Um, Are there any particular examples um, that come to mind of like what in previous generations um, would have been thought of as like regressive or not attractive that we value and, and so forth? Yeah, I mean, I think I was just reading a, a book called One Hundred One Common Sense. Um, by Del Alquist, who's the president of the G.K. Chesterton Society, and he kind of gives little snippets on G.K. Chesterton's thoughts in a variety of different areas, and he's talking about, um, I mean, if you just look at like art, for instance, um, and, you know, there's the age-old subjective question, what is art, and no one really ever has an answer, but what art is not <laughs> is um, incoherent babble or incoherent structures on a a canvas or a banana taped to a wall, um, you know, as we see it. And so I think modern art's one of those things where I think prior, you know, especially in more the Gothic era, a lot of medieval eras, and even in the ancient world, 
architecture, art, and art not just in the, the painting sense, but also within literature and whatnot was, you know, came to a point. It had a it had a moral. It had clearly demarcated lines. Chesterton gives a lovely example about, you know, at some point you can draw a giraffe with no neck, but it's going to cease to be a giraffe. Um, and I think you see with modern art, it's regressive to it being abstract and just kind of muddled colors or, you know, postmodern fiction that has no point or even like a show like Seinfeld. I think Seinfeld's hilarious. It has no progress towards, I mean, the characters virtually have no character development throughout all the seasons. Um, and so I think you see we're used to uh, a man would gain virtue throughout the course of his life by working towards certain goals, um, being a certain pillar of his community, uh, whether his religious community, uh, where he lived geographically, um, all those things and women would as well. Um, and if he was an artist, you know, he would want to paint something because it was beautiful because it pointed someone towards a transcendent or he wanted to write something that had meaning like Lord of the Rings has such a, a deep, intense meaning, um, behind every part of it. Now, a lot of the popular fiction I read, I mean, it has no progression. It's, it's completely pointless towards a lot of the end. And like, I mean, people like Hemingway or, uh, Fitzgerald, I mean, you read the sun also rises by Hemingway and you get to the end of it and you're like, these are just some friends that rode around Spain and got drunk a bunch and played on each other's emotions. And you could say, well, it's the getting into like the, the personality of the soul. And it, that's not why Hemingway wrote. I mean, you can tell that he has some clear objectives to, to point towards nihilism, that life is meaningless. He's disillusioned in a lot of ways. And so I think those things are, are indicators that now that's, what's accepted. I mean, even think about poetry, there used to be a time with meter and verse and, you could talk about the springtime over and over and all the good poets talked about the spring and it never got old because how fresh and refreshing those motifs and visions and imagery are. Now there's no meter. There's no point. People don't even follow certain rhyme schemes. It's just there. So I know that was a long winded answer to that, but I think there's lots of things, um, particularly in in that realm that are headed in the wrong direction. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we, we go so fast. We don't have time. We, um, I mean, uh, cultivating rich art or enjoying rich art takes time, uh, dedication, and we're just, uh, you know, progress, 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 you know. Right. And it also takes exploring the human soul, like I alluded to earlier, and that takes time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that's where I like someone like Dostoevsky, who I've read quite a bit, um, his novels usually do end very poorly and he spends a thousand pages on them. Um, but they're not disillusioned. They're exploring the character's inner mind, inner dimension, inner life and their outer life. Um, and it takes time to read a thousand page novel and really get into the inner workings of someone's soul through an author. And I just don't know that people are willing to, to do that. What's the circus? What's the spectacle? What's expedient is, seems to be more desired. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you asked if there's hope as far as moving away from the direction we're going. Is, do you think so? I think on a meta level, 
not necessarily. I don't think there's anything new under the sun. Um, you know, I, I love what Lewis says. I think it's a learning wartime that we've always felt like we're on the precipice of, you know, some disaster, but humanity's always been on the precipice of disaster. It's just different political leaders, different time and place, but we've always been one step away from, you know, tumbling down. It's only the grace and sovereignty of God that, that holds us there. Um, so I would say on a meta level, not necessarily. Um, I would say on a more minuscule or not necessarily minuscule, but minor level, I am seeing quite a bit of signs of, of people, at least my age, not many, but some of my friends um, starting to, to work towards renewal. One thing that I've been discussing a lot with my friends lately, I have some, some Catholic friends and some Protestant friends, and we've really been discussing, you know, how do we return to good biblical liturgies in our, our daily lives? How do we realize that the Bible has ultimate authority, but there are traditions that are really good and wholesome for us to to partake in? How do we um, cultivate our lives in such a way that leads to human flourishing within our communities and our workplaces? And so there's a conversation among folks around my age, the mid-20s, um, and there's actually this big movement, um, I think it's called Babto-Catholicity, I, I don't really know, but it's kind of the working together of Baptists and, and Catholics to kind of start to reclaim some of those writings of church fathers and church mothers and some of the traditions that are really good and helpful and beneficial to us uh, in our, our daily spheres and daily lives, starting to think about how how can we be kingdom-focused and expanding the kingdom to all nations and all places, but also understand the goodness of creeds, understand um, the goodness of hospitality and the virtue of, of that. And um, so... I would say there, there's hope for, on a smaller scale, of Christians kind of realizing the absence of of virtue, the absence of sustenance, and and starting to return to some of those things. But I'd say it's on a very small scale, very, very. And maybe it's just I'm privy to it because I'm in those circles. We talk about them more. Um, I definitely don't think it's even the grand view of Christendom either. I think it's a small little sliver of a small sliver within within that. Thanks, Seth. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks. It's really good. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed coming out and, um, yeah, it's really interesting. I would love to keep talking more in the future. Okay. Sounds great.